We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to tell you about Hongi Hika, a Māori chieftain and war leader who became an extremely important figure in the history of Aotearoa New Zealand as Europeans began to spread their influence across his homeland. The most recent full-length episode of half Ass History talks about the Māori settlement of Aotearoa, uh, but also talks about what happened once the Europeans, or the Pākehā, started to turn up and, uh, and began to settle there as well. And Hongi Hika had an enormous impact on the relations between Māori and Pākehā in the early 19th century, and in addition to this, also had an enormous impact on the relations between Māori and other Māori, uh, due to his role, of course, in the opening stages of the Musket Wars. And while the uh, the most notable aspect of Hongi Hika's legacy is probably his involvement in, in the opening stages of the Musket Wars, this bloke did so much else with his time. I'll tell you this. Um, he revolutionised or helped to revolutionise uh, Māori economic and agricultural practices. Um, he helped to develop Te Reo Māori, the, the Māori language, as a written language, and uh, notably travelled extensively, further than any Māori had for a very, very long time. He travelled all the way to Britain and met King George IV himself. With alert listeners Harris Foreman and Travis Weatherly writing in to request uh, specifically the, the history of Hongihika and, of course, the fact that we've been talking uh, about so much Kiwi history at the moment on the show, I thought that this was a good opportunity to get across the, the tale of someone who is, is so monumentally important when it comes to the history of, of, of Aotearoa. So let's get to it here. Going back to the year 1772, when Hongihika was born around that year anyway, uh, in the far, far north uh, of Aotearoa, as a scion of the powerful Te Uri Ohuahapu, or, or tribe, uh, which in turn was part of the Nyapui Iwi, or the, uh, the, the tribal confederation Iwi. Um, Hongihika first rose to prominence in the uh, in the opening decade of the 19th century, specifically between uh, around the years 1806-1808. Um, this was when his iwi, the Nyapui, was at war with another iwi, the Nyatihuatua. And uh, during this war, Hongi was present uh, the very first time in recorded history that Māori used muskets in battle. This would prove to be a uh, a decisive point in uh, in Māori history, the Battle of Morimonui where the uh, Nyapui actually suffered a terrible de- de- defeat despite them having muskets. They only had a handful of them. But uh, all the same, the Nyapui, they were overrun. The, the Nyati Fatua, they killed Hongi's brothers, one of whom, Pokaya, was a Nyapui war leader. And so uh, with the death of his brother, Hongi took his place as a, as a Nyapui war leader. 
And um, even the loss of this battle, even with the Nyapui having muskets, uh, Hongi became determined to better harness the musket in fighting his Iwi's enemies. Hongihika and the Nyapui were in a, uh, a unique position to, position to do this as well, because the Nyapui lands included the, uh, the Bay of Islands, which is where European travellers, explorers and settlers could be readily found around this time. This was one of the first places that, uh, that, that, that Pakia began, began to settle. And we talked about this in the last episode. We talked about how uh, the, the Pakia arrived and brought with them all sorts of things, some good, some bad. And uh, Hongi was actually one of the Māori who was... Uh, very, very happy to have the Pakia come and uh, and settle in, in Nyapui lands. Um, he encouraged them to stick around. He saw the benefits that came with things like trade with the Pakia. Um, and again, we talked about this last last week, right? Pigs, potatoes, they changed the, Ma- the Māori economy forever. But, of course, so did more than anything else, the musket. And war leaders like Hongihika were very, very keen for continued friendly relations with the Pakia to maintain their to maintain, maintain these trade links and therefore maintain their as, their access to these muskets. So, as a result of uh, his ambitions to uh, enter into what was effectively an arms race with other Maori uh, iwi, Hongi befriended many Pakia and actually protected them from other Māori who were perhaps less receptive to a European presence in Aotearoa. And he absolutely cleaned up as a result of this. He determinedly kept kept on trading for muskets in great numbers. Um, but it wasn't just it wasn't just muskets he was after. He was also after information. Because Hongihika sought very deliberately to learn as much as he could about European uh, tactics and, and warfare and the use of these muskets in battle. But not only that, he also wanted to learn about Pakia agricultural techniques. You know, in 1814, Hongihika visited Sydney over on the other side of the Tasman Sea in the, in the colony of New South Wales, where he observed with great interest the farming and the agricultural ag- agriculture that was going over there. And he brought many of these ideas back to his iwi, back to the Nyapui, who were able to produce uh, agricultural products to, to trade with the, uh, the Pakia once again, so they could, of course... <laughs> buy and get their hands on more muskets. But Hongihika's uh, influence over Pakia settlement was uh, was much more profound than this because stories of the protection that Ny- the Nyapui were offering Pakia in the far north of New Zealand, they spread amongst Europeans who were keen to visit New Zealand. And this directly resulted in more and more people coming to Aotearoa and setting up trading posts and missions, knowing that they had at least one group of Māori who were going to be friendly to them. And, and the Nyapui and Hongihika were a very powerful friend to have as well. In, in 1815, he became the Ariki, the, the chief of the Nyapui, and he encouraged and protected all of the Pakia that settled around the Bay of Islands, continuing to trade not just for muskets, but also for farming tools so his people could increase their agricultural efficiency with many of the concepts that he brought back to them. However, if we're going to talk about agricultural efficiency, unfortunately, we have to talk about another of the means that Hongi used to increase the Nyapui's agricultural efficiency. Uh, It was a far more reprehensible way of doing this. It was through slavery. In 1817, armed as they were with their muskets, the Nyapui began to stage huge raids on other iwi, on the Nyatimaru, the Nyatipolu, uh, and plenty of others besides. And they did these raids, uh, they undertook these raids in order to take prisoners from these other iwi and enslave them 
forcing them to then work on Yapui farms. And of course, doing this only generated more trade goods from these farms for the Nyapuli, which enabled them to trade for more more muskets, which then enabled more raids, and you can kind of see how this went. The musket wars were well and truly underway by this point. They're often dated back to around 1806 or 1807, the the time of the the battle I talked about before, the Battle of Morimonui. But by 1820, more and more Māori iwi are scrambling to get their hands on muskets to aid them in fighting their wars against other iwi. And a lot of that was due to Hongi Hika and his early adoption of this revolutionary military technology. Because armed with traditional weapons made of stone and wood, the enemies of people like the Nyapui, they had no chance at all. The only way that they could hope, hope to fight on equal terms with musket-armed opponents was to get muskets of their own. But then, once these other iwi had muskets, they then went after other other iwi that didn't have muskets yet, picking them off just as the Nyapui had. So it was, for all intents and purposes, just an arms race that completely enveloped the, the Maori people living in Aotearoa. The musket wars were an extremely deadly example of the negative consequences of European contact with the Maori in Aotearoa uh, and would go on, of course, in time to claim tens of thousands of lives, even after the death of Hongi Hika himself. But to return to his story now, um, because while the musket wars are a very important and, and a, a very big part of the legacy of Hongi Hika, he had a lot, of, a lot of other stuff going on, as we've said. Because in addition to, uh, to going to war with enemy Iwi, Hongi Hika was also continuing to encourage missionaries to settle in Aotearoa. Now, he didn't have much time at all for their message, right? He, he never converted to Christianity and didn't seem to think much of it. But there was something he did have a very keen interest in when it came to these missionaries, and that was their literacy. These bookish, educated missionaries brought with them the the knowledge of reading and writing, and Hongi Hika wanted to develop a written version of the Māori language that he spoke, and he was absolutely instrumental in making this the reality that it is today. Māori, as it is now in the 21st century, can be written down, it can be expressed in the written form. This is not something that happened before contact with Europeans and specifically uh, with European missionaries. And this was a mission that uh, the Tongihika was so determined to fulfill, um, establishing Māori as a, as a written language, that he didn't just stick around uh, around in Aotearoa to see it through. No, in 1820, Hongihika made the long journey all the way across the globe, all the way from Aotearoa to Britain. Along with his nephew, Waitako, and a Pakia missionary named Thomas Kendall, Hongihika boarded a whaling ship called the New Zealander, and sailed all the way from New Zealand, all the way across half the globe to London. And what a time he had there, let me tell you. He was a cultural sensation. Everyone over in London was very interested to meet this man from the farthest frontiers of the planet, especially uh, due to his appearance. Like so many other Māori, Hongi Hika had moku, he had facial tattoos uh, that covered almost all of his face, and uh, so as a result, Hongi Hika was unlike anyone people in London had ever seen before in their lives. Hongi Hika even met King George IV himself, as I mentioned, and uh, King George gave Hongi a very interesting gift. He gave him a suit of armour, which Hongi would later wear in, uh, in battle back in New Zealand, but he was given a great many other gifts by a great many other people too, uh, all sorts of stuff, although not many of them made it back to Aotearoa like the uh, like the suit of armour, as uh, again, as we'll come to in a little bit. But more important than his meeting with the king, more important than all the gifts he got while he was over there, Hongihika met with uh, someone else and uh, did something that would have 
an enormous impact on the history of, of, of the Māori people and, and also te reo Māori, the, the, the language that they spoke as well. Because while over in Britain, Hongihika spent some time with a bloke named Professor Samuel Lee. Now, Lee, who is known to history to have been a very cunning linguist, is credited, uh, along with the Pakia missionary Kendall and, of course, Hongihika himself, he is credited with the creation of the first ever dictionary of te reo Māori. This dictionary was called A Grammar and Vocabulary of the Language of New Zealand and would obviously go on to have a colossal influence on the development of Te Reo Māori. Te Reo Māori had been spoken in, in Aotearoa for, for centuries. Obviously, the, the Māori people had, had spoken this language for, for, for many, many, many years, but they had never written it down. And as a result of Hongihika's efforts with his colleagues, uh, Lee and Kendall, this dictionary was a turning point in the history of Te Reo Māori because it was the first time that the language had been officially written down in a way that was organised and structured and had rules of grammar and vocabulary and everything else. And obviously this would play a massive part in the continued development of the, of the language. Even today, Te Reo Māori is, uh, is, is, is continued to be shaped by the, by, by the way in which it's written. But it had some very interesting consequences on a very specific level that have echoed through the, the years uh, after this dictionary was, was first written. For instance, right, uh, perhaps most notably, um, when it comes to Te Reo Māori as a written language, it has an overwhelmingly northern influence to it because much of it was based on Hongihika and his northern dialect. This is why, uh, as an example, the F sound, the F sound in Māori is spelt with a WH uh, because Hongihika, with his particular northern accent, he would have pronounced words like whanau as huanau. And so hearing Hongihika say it in this way, it was decided that WH would be the, uh, would be the, would be the, the way to represent this sound uh, in, in, in a written format. But many other Māori speakers, they don't say huanau, they say whanau. But because Hongi literally wrote the dictionary, that's how the this F sound ended up being expressed in letters using WH. So because of Hongi Hika, even today, written Te Reo Māori does have a huge regional bias towards northern dialects, which, as you can imagine, has impacted the development of the language incredibly strongly over the years. Um, to, put, to put it in a... To sort of look at this from a different perspective, it, it would be like... Um, trying to write a dictionary of Australian English, right, but getting someone from South Australia to do it. So, you know, we'd all be calling milk bars delis or utility poles stoby poles or we'd be calling DVD play. Well, no, we wouldn't have a word for DVD players, would we? Because over in Adelaide, they're still marvelling at the VCR. But anyway, this should go to show you just how important Hongihika's uh, cultural legacy is, not just his military legacy, but his cultural legacy helped to shape Te Reo Māori as a written language like no other person in history ever did. Anyway, after five months in Britain, Hongihika, he boarded a convict ship uh, called the Speke with uh, Wai- Waikato and Kendall uh, once again, and he sailed all the way back to, uh, to this little corner of the world. He sailed to Sydney. Now, remember those presents that he'd been given by all these people in London? Well, most of them, uh, not the suit of armour, but most of the others, they didn't make it past Sydney because in Sydney they were exchanged for muskets. Yep, and lots of them. Hongi then returned to Aotearoa with hundreds and hundreds of these newly acquired firearms. He arrived back in mid-1821 and, oh boy, did he put these muskets to use. He led the Nyapui, uh, clad in his suit of armour in some cases, in a campaign against another iwi, 
the Nyatipawa. And this campaign was extremely deadly. Uh, thousands and thousands of people died and many more were taken as slaves for the Nyapui. And because of Hongihika's return, the, the musket was escalated very quickly uh, and obviously continued to shape the history of, uh, of the islands. And, and not just through the death and, and destruction that was meted out by people like Hongihika and the Nyapui, um, not just through the great loss of life and, and, and the reduction in, in Māori population that came with them as, as more and more iwi armed themselves and, and fought like Hongihika and his Nyapui did. No. In 1824, there was an interesting, uh, a very interesting consequence of the musket wars, one that has, uh, is still very, very obviously uh, visible today. You look at a map of New Zealand and, and uh, this, is, this is why the, the country looks the way it does, right? In 1824, the Nyapui, they attacked another iwi, the Nyatifatua. And they didn't just defeat the Nyatifatua, they actually drove them off their land altogether. And this land uh, that had belonged to the Nyatifatua, it happened to be a little isthmus, a little stretch of land that connects to a thin stretch of land connecting two other large land masses, an isthmus that connected the far north with the North Island, filled with bays and natural harbours. And this land was left empty by the Nyapui once they essentially took it off the the Nyatifatua. Uh, they left it as a buffer zone between them and, and their southern foes. And the fact that this land remained uninhabited for years afterwards meant that 15 years later, when Governor William Hobson turns up looking for a place to build a new colonial city, he was able to purchase this uninhabited isthmus very, very cheaply from the Māori. And if you visit this isthmus today, you will find upon it the city of Auckland, the biggest city in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and its capital, for 14 years, between 1841 and 1865. It's obviously not the capital anymore. Everyone knows that. The capital is, of course, Wellington. But I don't need to tell you that. Very common knowledge, that is. Who would ever make that mistake? Anyway, the musket wars that uh, the Hongihika had played such an instrumental role in uh, in intensifying and, and expanding in the way that he and the Nyapui did, they continued to, to grow and eventually would uh, would overtake almost all of Aotearoa, um, getting to perhaps their worst point in the 1830s and resulting to resulting in the death of uh, of countless Maori as they all fought between each other with this uh, with this new European technology. And one of the Maori that was killed during the musket wars was, of course, Hongihika himself. His relentless fighting against the other iwi eventually caught up to him in 1828. Uh, in 1827, during an engagement with an, uh, with an enemy iwi, he was shot in the chest. And while initially it looked like there might have been a chance for him to survive this injury, uh, eventually, after a period of infection, it did take his life on the 6th of March, 1828, when he was in his mid-50s. And that was the end of one of the most important figures in Māori and Kiwi history from the early 19th century, a man with considerable foresight, Hongihika recognised the value of things like muskets in warfare, but also the value of things like a written language and international trade and advanced agricultural techniques. His encouragement of Pākehā settlement would go on to have a, a monumental impact on the history of Aotearoa, as indeed would the way that he intensified the deadly musket wars. So, at the end of it all, I think it's fair to say that Hongi Hika left behind a very complicated legacy, a mixed legacy, not all of it positive by any means. But whether positive or negative, there is one thing you cannot deny about the legacy of Hongi Hika, and that is the fact that it was an extremely important one.
We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, We have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.